It has come to our attention that a mysterious force is loose somewhere in outer space. Welcome to Talk Tank. the official LSE Entrepreneurs podcast where we delve into the minds of those who think, live and breathe outside the box. My name is Alki and I will be your host for today. Welcome to the Artistpreneur series where we steer clear of conventions and turn to the creative hearted. We tune into the process behind the writers, the performers and the visual storytellers. Do they confront us with reality or allow us to escape from it? Today's guest is Isabella Burley, the former editor-in-chief of the culture and fashion bible Dazed. The young creative has followed a path unlike any other, dropping out two months into her art degree to pursue a career in the fast-moving world of fashion. She joined Dazed magazine at the age of 22 and became editor-in-chief only two years thereafter. She has interviewed culture-defining voices, including Cozy Funny Tutti and Pamela Anderson, and lent her expertise to dynamic brands such as Helmut Lang and Marc Jacobs. The latest project that she launched is an online bookstore called Climax Books, which features hard-to-find ephemera, periodicals, erotica, VHS tapes, and anthologies on art, photography, and counterculture. Stay tuned to discover Isabella's journey from working at Dover Street Market to heading the most influential independent fashion magazine of our time. Welcome to the Talk Tank, Isabella. We are so excited to have you on. Thank you. What an introduction. So we've given you our little LinkedIn style achievement introduction. I'm excited to delve more into the specifics of it all. But before we get to your current projects, uh, let's take a quick walk down memory lane. Um, I'd like to hear a bit about your primary influences. Could you tell us where you were born and um, who lived in that house? Yeah, so I was born in London, um, in South London, but my mum is German. She's from the Black Forest and my dad is from New Zealand. So it was quite interesting as a kid, you know, being quite a hardcore kind of like city girl, um, then traveling back to Germany to the Black Forest, which is this insanely kind of magical place, especially as a kid. Um, So that contrast was kind of crazy growing up, um, but quite fun looking back at it now. I can imagine I'm myself from two very contrasting backgrounds and I feel like this has really shaped the person that I am. So, you know, we started with the beginning of your path, where you're from, and now you're doing something very creative, um, you know, with Dazed and Climax books. But were you always kind of a creative person, even when you were younger? What did your childhood look like and what was the role of art? Uh, what, What role did art play in it? Yeah, I think as a kid, I wasn't particularly creative from what I can remember. It feels like a very long time ago. Um, But I think art was always this kind of escapism. And I think I was very, very interested in visuals kind of as a teenager. I think, you know, so much of, of being a teenager, especially in London, was like your identity and how you express yourself. Um... And also who you surround yourself with. And I think it was a lot of the people that I was around, you know, especially in my early teenage years that really shaped like who I am, how I think about the world, 
my taste, what I like, what I don't like. So I think it's also like the culture of, of people um, that may be more so than traditional kind of art, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, for sure. And how how did you enter the fashion world? So after, you know, after high school, how did you get into fashion or was it even before um, you finished? Yeah, it was strange because um, when I was 17 years old, I started working at Dover Street Market, which for me was this huge kind of education um, in terms of you know, the people that you were working with day to day, you know, so many incredible artists and designers um, and great editors as well that I kind of worked with them on the shop floor, people like the designer Charlie Casey Hayford, Dean Mary Davies, um, Laura Bradley, some brilliant editors. Um, so there was kind of that side of it. And then also, you know, all of the crazy customers that would come in, you'd have like Peter Savile stripping off and trying on a shirt in front of you. And then I don't know, incredible artists and, and photographers and stylists would kind of come in. So, you know, it was, you were kind of exposed to some amazing people. So, wow, it sounds like this was really an exciting time. Could you tell us a story about, you know, some of these uh, extravagant guests that you mentioned uh, would come to Dover Street Market? I mean, I was also only 17, so I didn't really know who everyone was all the time. And You know, even when I first started, I didn't, you know, not know how to pronounce Ander Millimeter or that Jinya Watanabe wasn't a woman and, and, you know, learning a lot about the designers and everything. But also, yeah, so many crazy characters would come in. Um, Jared Leto came in one time and I was dressed no like way. a very sexy 17-year-old goth and... Um, <laughs> But I actually didn't know who he was. And then someone was like, you should go home and watch Requiem for a Dream. And then I was like, oh, I get it. You <laughs> get who this strange man is talking to everyone. Whoa. So Dover Street Market sounds like a vibrant, exciting time of your life. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to how you got, you know, from working there into writing, because I read, um, you know, that you the first uh, kind of interview that you did, you were quite young. So Could you tell us a bit about, um, you know, what's the first story um, that you wrote and how, how did you get into writing? Yeah, I mean, it was a funny story because I started a fine art foundation at um, Byam Shaw, which was the kind of fine art arm of Central St. Martins, which was in Archway, but no longer exists. Um, and I dropped out after a couple of months. It just, for some reason, didn't click with me. Um, and... I was dating someone slightly older at the time who was an art director and he kind of suggested thinking about magazines and, and had a friend that was working at a magazine. So I started interning with them and I was more kind of interested at that point in, in the kind of styling side. So working on the fashion team and as a, as a fashion assistant, but I also kind of became friends with um, the editor who is the amazing writer, Dean Kizik, who's now based in, in New York. And, you know, we kind of became friends and I, I was interested in some way in writing, but I just didn't really know what that looked like. I hadn't ever really written a piece for a magazine or interviewed anyone. And then Cozy Fanny Tutti had, was having a, a show at the ICA, this kind of one day event called Cozy Complex that was curated by the editor, Maria Fisco, who ran the magazine Happy Hypocrite. So I kind of pitched that to Dean and I was like, I want to interview Cozy Fanny Tutti. And he was like, sure. 
So I think I must have been, maybe I'd been like, I was 18 or, or 19 at that point. But yeah, it was the first interview I'd ever done. So, I mean, now I think I would have been terrified to do it if I was 18 years old, but somehow probably chain smoking outside the ICA, I, I managed to get it done. So that was my first interview. Well, uh, incredible. I mean, uh, exactly what you said, like, you know, having just the the balls <laughs> to do that at a young age <laughs> yeah. without having interviewed anyone. I think that's something, um, yeah, I think that sends an important message to our listeners. But to delve a bit more into the the writing. So you've interviewed some incredible people, like you just said, Cozy Fanny Tutti, Pamela Anderson, Marina Abramovich. So is there any advice that you can share to like aspiring writers like how should one approach such an intimidating task or how did you approach it at the time? Yeah, I think what's also interesting for me is I've never, I don't enjoy writing. I don't think I ever have. I've always kind of forced myself into doing it. And anyone that has worked with me in that capacity knows how painfully long it takes me to write a piece. But I think for me, what's always been so interesting is the interviewing process and this idea of, you know, you spend weeks, days, months, you know, researching your subject. I would spend so much time on YouTube watching the way someone talks and behaves and their body language. And I find that also fascinating. And kind of you construct this idea of someone and then you sit with them and you meet them and they're either the opposite of that or they're exactly how you think they're going to be. And, and that's so interesting. But also as an interviewer, you know, you have an incredible kind of, power I guess in you know you're there to make that subject feel comfortable and safe with you and to get them to feel like they can open up about um, maybe areas of their careers that I haven't spoken about so much and and to sort of know what you're about and what you stand for and what you want to reflect in that piece so I think for me yeah the research side of of writing and interviewing is always like the best bit and then you come to writing it and I'm like oh fuck's sake but yeah so it's always it's it's more the the research and then actually doing the interview because you're terrified before you have all this adrenaline then you do it and it's like this crazy come down um but then you also have great memories of it like I have this old um copy of Playboy that Pamela Anderson signed for me after I interviewed her in in Malibu for it was actually for day's 25th anniversary and it's like that's something I will treasure forever and it's just like so funny to me that I have a signed Pamela Anderson copy of Playboy that I interviewed her and like how cool is that I I relate to that so much and especially the the calm down that you explained after the interview I I remember one of the interviews that I did for the podcast was was with yeah. this podcaster that I'd been listening to um, who has a podcast on innovation and I've just been listening to him for the longest time and then I got to interview him and he, he was based in Australia so there was a huge time difference so I had to record yeah. it at like 1am my time and I still remember I finished the interview and I just felt so awake because I was yeah. so excited and just so pumped and I I mean I can't imagine how that must have felt like the come down from Pamela Anderson and all the amazing speakers you've spoken to. And now let's hop on over to Dazed Magazine. Um, how did you end up there or what chain chain of events um, eventually led you to Dazed? So again, it really came from Dover Street Market. Um, I was lucky enough to work with the amazing um, writer and editor, Dean Mayer Davies, 
we were both on on the shop floor together at the very very start of I guess our our, our careers um but Dean was working I think at ID first so he started commissioning me when he was there he actually commissioned me to interview Marina Abramovic who you know, which was, was an amazing piece to kind of get at such a young age um, for ID for print. And then he eventually moved over to Dazed as their fashion features editor. And he was leaving, I think, after a couple of years and kind of put me forward for his role. Um, and I'd already started writing for Dazed and I, I'd, I'd even done a fashion week season covering stuff for them, I think in Milan. Um, and Robbie Spencer was about to become fashion director at that time. So it was kind of a time of change at the magazine, but Dean was very, very kind enough to put me forward to, to kind of take over his role. So that's how I started. Okay. So, so to recap, so first you were, uh, doing sort of, uh, pieces as a commissioned writer and then, um, you joined as editor and then. Um, so I started as fashion features editor when I was 22 and then a year later I became editor and then a year after that editor-in-chief. How was that, uh, especially the final jump to editor-in-chief for <laughs> you? I, I imagine that must be a, I mean, something that one is very excited about, but also a huge uh, responsibility. I mean, looking back now, I just do not know how I did it or why Jefferson thought I would be capable, but he did, and I'm very thankful for that. Um, but I think when you're in it and, you know, and you're that age, you just, you're so excited and it's such an amazing magazine with such a rich legacy that you just have so many ideas and you want to give it absolutely everything. And that's an incredible feeling. There's also was an amazing team in place. You know, Robbie Spencer had been there for a really long, you know, good amount of time. And, and he was kind of becoming fashion director. And then when I transitioned to editor-in-chief, he transitioned into the creative director of the whole magazine. Um, so it was kind of, we always had each other, so it felt a lot less scary. And there's also, you know, an incredible network of, of contributors and stylists and image makers who make that magazine what it is. So whilst it was really terrifying I kind of always felt like I had a family and a support system and we just I don't know we were so excited by it and there were so many brilliant brilliant people doing great things that we wanted to spotlight that it never felt hard or scary or difficult it was just like instinctual in some way yeah I mean community matters a lot and it sounds like you had a great support network at Dazed how did it look uh externally meaning you know you were quite young you were 24 when you were editor-in-chief were you ever judged or you know were there ever misconceptions about you or did you ever feel that you were not taken serious because of your age or was that never an issue I think within the context of days it never felt like an issue and I was given such trust and freedom by Jefferson and by the team but I think there was definitely, you know, when you go to Fashion Week and you travel for the entire month, you know, I think there was definitely a vibe at the beginning of like, why is this 24-year-old um, sitting on the front row of a Chanel show or whatever? But now I look back at it and I'm like, I don't know, I just think it's so funny and how lucky, you know, we all were to go and see those amazing shows at that time. I don't know. And then you also sort of get embraced by those kind of slightly more old school editors and you kind of learn to love how old school they are in a way and you learn a lot from those people so there's also that side that I think 
yeah, people that maybe I found scary or intimidating, you then realize that, you know, they're not so scary. Yeah. And speaking of, uh, you know, misconceptions and people's ideas, I think commonly, especially people who don't uh, work in fashion, we have this idea of the editor-in-chief, like in the Devil Wears Prada, Meryl Streep, you know, just this scary boss woman. Um, were there any misconceptions that you had before taking on this role? Or, you know, are there any myths that you cleared up since since you actually took on this uh, infamous role? Yeah, I mean, I'm very Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> but no, I'm joking. Not at um, all. <laughs> literally the opposite. Um, I don't know, I kind of... I, I really genuinely never, ever thought at any point before starting at Days or even when I was at Days that I would become the editor in chief. It was it was strangely like never a desire or like a path that I saw, which is this kind of amazing thing that happened. And I'm so glad, you know, I kind of was was able to do that. But I don't know. I think so much about the culture of Days is that it is should always be in the hands of young people to kind of reflect the world that they see around them and, and the brilliant people. So I'd, I'd really like to think that we had or still have um, a magazine that is very collaborative and very supportive of, of young people. Um, so I think for me, it was really about, yeah, building those relationships and people knowing that they had a space and a platform at days that they could come to us with their weird, crazy fucking ideas and we would do it and we would go for it and we'd make covers at times when, you know, people, you know, might not have been cover star worthy for something else. Like we just didn't care. And we were like, this person is amazing and we want to champion them. And, you know, there were no rules in that sense. So I guess, yeah, a lot of the kind of editor in chief myths kind of just never existed at, at days for me at least. Um, but also I think so much of that kind of editor in chief, I don't even know what the word is like, concept or construction is kind of this sense of them being this one central figure and I think what's always been so special about Days is like this whole team internally plus this crazy external global community of people and image makers and stylists and writers cultural thinkers that's what Dazed is yes you have an editor-in-chief a creative director a fashion director but it's about you know a kind of collective force and spirit that can't be narrowed down to one singular person. And I think, especially with a magazine like Days, which has such a cultural legacy, it's not about one person, you know, yeah. and it never has been, and I don't think it ever should be. I, I really liked how you phrased it and what you took out of Days. Um, and now segueing into your new project, uh, Climax Books, what an exciting title. Uh, tell us, um, you know, what is it? How did this new project uh, come to be? I mean, it's been an idea I've had kind of in the back of my mind for five or six years. Um, I guess I've always been drawn to kind of cultural ephemera, photography, books, specifically um, erotic ephemera, material so I think I kind of had always had this interest in my mind and as something that I've been collecting for many, many years, but never really knowing like what to do with this material or this knowledge or like these weird things that I've come to know about over all these years. And one time I was in New York 
yeah, I think five or six years ago. And I was in a vintage store, which sounds very cliche, but there was this label from the 80s called Climax. Um, and I saw the kind of clothing tag on a dress or jumper or something like that. And the graphic was just so incredible. And it was just such a good name. And I was like, that's it. Like, that is what it is. Um, but I think things got busy. I then took on this big role at, at Helmut Lang and I was suddenly like between London and New York all the time and things got busy with days. I became editor in chief, etc. So it was something that I kind of then put on hold, but always knew that it would manifest in some way. And, and I'd kind of would always be collecting material when I was traveling to Tokyo or wherever I would be in the world. Um, and then when lockdown happened, the day summer issue was kind of um, not cancelled, but just there was no way of physically making a magazine at that time. Printers had shut, no one was able to shoot. So for the first time in you know a decade or so, I finally like had time on my hands. And for me, I really have to be busy at all times and have to keep my kind of curiosity and be researching and, and doing different things. So it was kind of like now or never with Climax. It's, it's really interesting how it all kind of started with you seeing that name. And then it was like, okay, this is this is it. The the feeling I had inside of me I that wasn't fully manifested yet. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm curious. So personally, I'm a lover of photography books. And as soon as I'm in London, I can't wait to get my hands on something from Climax books. Um, but I know that a lot of people, and especially through the pandemic, there's this shift, you know, towards digital and everything online and uh, magazines and newspapers uh, printing less and less physical issues. You've experienced firsthand the shift into digital with within fashion and photography uh, as part of Dazed. But you also decide to sell physical uh, merchandise in an online store through Climax Books. So what value do you see in the physical medium and in what, uh, you know, what you sell through Climax Books in an increasingly virtual world? I mean, I feel like for me, it's like the best of both worlds because, you know, a lot of what the material that we have is incredibly rare, strange, wonderful things that sometimes I'm like, how the fuck did I find this? And so be able to sort of share that in some way digitally But for kind of one person to have that piece of cultural ephemera is is really incredible. And I think what's so exciting. But I don't know, I think especially when you look at cultural ephemera, there's just something that like the physicality of it, you just can't get that if you see it digitally. Um, I recently got um, a copy of uh, the memorial kind of zine that was printed. It's not even a zine. It's just a one. It's a folded sheet of paper. Um, for David Wanarovich and just even physically seeing that you know it's just you hold it you feel the weight of the paper just how special it is we also got this incredible um, Keith Haring it's basically this huge pink Keith Haring penis which was a <laughs> club night flyer for this club night in Milan in 1993 and just the scale and, and all of it it's just like you have to physically kind of experience that it doesn't translate as a kind of flat image online so there's definitely yeah that side of it and a lot of the kind of 
weirder magazines that we have have never really been digitally kind of archived or scanned so you know you maybe see the cover but you have no concept of what's inside and I kind of love that that people then get it and they see all of the weird kind of design details and nuances that make it so special so yeah I think people definitely crave it and I think most of the people that are buying stuff at the moment are photographers or stylists or people that are working you know, creatively now and, and are like really the best at what they do. So I think it's kind of, I don't know, it gives you like reassurance that people still really treasure something that's physical and tactile that they can, you know, keep forever in some way. Yeah, I think that um, surprise effect that you kind of mentioned is something that we often lose uh, through digital. Even, you know, if I, I always think about it when I think about restaurants, like, Whenever yeah. I want to go somewhere to eat, the first thing anyone does, like, okay, let's check like TripAdvisor, let's see the reviews. And yeah. like, you're almost scared of walking into the unknown, but that also exactly. prevents you from like discovering new treasures that maybe are not on TripAdvisor or, or something. A hundred percent. Yeah. And also like buying, you know, before I would obviously travel a lot to Tokyo, but now, you know, you are kind of buy stuff from strange Japanese websites and you're never quite sure if the translation is correct or or you're getting exactly, you know, it's just when you buy anything online, you just don't quite know what you're getting. And that's exactly the surprise of it, of like discovering something that, you know, you've literally never, ever seen before. And I think we live at such a time where visually you feel like you've seen every image, you've seen every reference, especially because of Instagram, that finding something that you're like, no one has ever seen this before is just such an incredible thing and and to kind of put that out in the world and I guess it's also like an educational side of it a bit with Climax where you're sort of telling the history behind these rare books or, or pieces of cultural ephemera that people you know might not ever get to physically see in their in their lives or you know so there's that side of it that I think is quite special. I as someone who also really values these physical experiences I'm I'm glad that there are people like you out there who are working hard to bring bring them to us and to keep them alive. Um, so thanks a lot. And yeah, I think this was a good segue into the last section of our podcast, which we call Real Talk. So these are the questions that we all uh, want to know the answer to, but are sometimes too afraid to ask. Um, so first, a question that I'm again asking out of my personal curiosity as much as for our listeners. Um, Personally, I always considered myself a, a creative person. Like I loved, you know, photography and art and going to museums and galleries. But I often struggled with, you know, not feeling creative enough to be in this industry or not feeling, you know, like I have like original enough or like my art is original enough to play a role. Did you feel quite naturally that you fit into this creative industry or did you ever question your role in it? I mean, I feel like I've spent my whole career questioning like what space I occupy, what I do, how do I define what I do? Even now I find that, especially now that I'm not the editor in chief of a magazine, it's almost harder to explain what you do in some way. But I think kind of going back to, yeah, how to define yourself, you know, I've never, as I said, I never enjoyed writing. I never saw myself in any way as a writer you know, at the same time, I'm not a traditional art director or creative director, but that is also a big part of, you know, my job and, and what I do. Um, I don't know, I think, yeah, it's something I'm still kind of defining, but that's also so exciting for me that I've started working 
with um, Acne Studios on, on their creative. And it's this kind of interesting thing of, I sort of get to define how I work and, and what I do. Um, but then I also run a bookstore and that's really fun. And half the time I'm like packaging up orders and researching new stuff. And, you know, then I'll work on a project with the museum. We just finished editing um, the day's 30th anniversary book that's being published by Rizzoli. So that's like a three-year editing process of a book. So, oh, you know, wow. it's this crazy mix of all of these projects. But I think for me, that's like what's so amazing about what I get to do and what makes me feel so lucky is that I can do all of these different things and explore all of these curiosities that, you know, a lot of people aren't able to explore as their job. So, yeah, it's fun, but it's also quite stressful. <laughs> no, I, I think that's amazing. And it's it's much sadder to always look forward to a next title and a next promotion and a next job yeah. role. It sounds much more fun what you're doing, just, you know, following passions and interests and projects that you're excited about. Of course. Um, could you tell us a bit about, so you quickly mentioned that it's very fun, but also um, stressful. So, you know, for someone thinking about entering that industry, um, you know, what are the difficult aspects of, uh, you know, either either all of the jobs you did or if there's a particular one that was very challenging um, because often what we see on our end, you know, we see the end result, we see the magazine, yeah. we see the amazing fashion show, the collection, and we're like, wow, what a fun job to work in. Everything is just so beautiful and inspiring. So yeah, if you could shed some light on the stressful or difficult aspects that you've had in your career, that would be great. I think it's just, you know, the pressure that people don't really talk about that much. And I think especially if you're given a big position at a very young age, you know, if I look back at like the very start of days, but then also when I took on the helmet Lang role, um, you know, that was a massive amount of pressure to kind of prove myself outside of the context of a magazine that has its own history and, and that you've been part of for a while. So there was that. And, you know, I was, as I sort of said, like traveling nonstop and there was, you know, so I was constantly jet lagged and, you know, I think it really takes its toll on you. And I think it's how you find ways to sort of ground yourself and learn what's best for like your mental health and your body and all of those things. You know, it's it's hard when there is a lot of pressure and there's a lot of pressure to perform and, and to kind of constantly kind of reach higher and higher and, and make great work, but also... I don't know, I think social media and all of that fuels it in such a negative way, whilst it is still a great platform. But I think just that kind of pressure of people expecting so much from young creatives all the time and kind of pulling them into so many different directions without kind of necessarily giving them the support that they need to like do their jobs well. I think that's something that is still not addressed within the industry. And I think just, yeah, the sheer pressure and demand and, and physical kind of like exertion of like, I mean, I guess not so much now, but travel and, and just never being able to really truly switch off because you feel like if you're switching off, you're not doing your job essentially. Um, I think that's something that's kind of insane about our industry. When you say that um, social media isn't really helping or making it worse, um, what are you referring to? Is it like the the pressure of having to 
have success online to for people to think to be that you're successful in real life or or just curious like what was yeah what was the thought behind behind this statement yeah I guess it's all of those things I think you know there's a lot of pressure to sort of be sharing the work that you're doing all the time and or to kind of showcase all of your different achievements or your promotions and all of that which can obviously be an amazing celebratory thing but um I don't know it's also quite toxic and it's sort of like that weird come down that we spoke about before but then at the same time it can be really great like we just launched this t-shirt with um a Climax Books t-shirt with Mark Jacobs last week and it sold out in a few hours and just like seeing the love and support for that and the idea that people even want to wear a t-shirt that says Climax on it <laughs> is just like so amazing to me um and people from really like all around the world and you know so that's so special but i think there's a massive amount of pressure to sort of i don't know i guess prove that you're up to something or whatever whereas you know behind closed doors you're like well actually you're working on some pretty amazing major things but because you haven't kind of communicated it um does it even exist you know in some people's eyes but i don't know i think it's cooler when people just use social media in like a very fun non-worky way and I don't know but it's something I think everyone's you know everyone that's part of my generation is navigating because you know we grew up without it but then kind of came into it um so it's, it's such a strange one yeah I I get that and I think it also connects back to what we were saying about the the physical experience because a painter for example could put a painting that you worked on for weeks on Instagram and you just swipe across it in exactly. one second and I don't know if I would be that artist that would be so frustrating to me like this is a week's worth of work and people are just like you know looking at it oh pretty picture like okay next one yeah it's just a completely different experience um but like you said obviously also has big big upsides to it um and another question that I would have so obviously there's been a lot of advice and insights that you've given us throughout this whole podcast but if you could go back and give your younger self um at any age you'd like a piece of advice um what what would you say um I guess maybe to have been like more even more fearless as a teenager or as a young adult and yeah to not worry what less about what people think of you but I think from such a young age, we kind of are, are forced to make sense of like who we are or where, especially from a, a career point of view, like what, what do we do? What's like the context around our career and all of that. And especially kind of going back to what I said earlier about still not really being able to define, I guess, what I do, because, you know, it is this mindset of an editor, but I'm now an editor that doesn't work at a magazine, but I work with brands and I work on other, with museums and on other projects that it's, yeah, it's a strange thing to define. So I guess it'd be like, don't worry about what it was all going to add up to because in some weird way it does all add up and um, you're kind of, you kind of have that freedom to make sense of it in whatever way that you want Um so it'd be like, yeah, to worry less, I guess, about that. Yeah, thank you for sharing your real talk with us. I think it's a very important message um, to echo. And I don't know, 
if you're aware of it, because I think in the creative industry, that's something, you know, the kind of following your instinct is something that happens a lot. But if I look at the people around me at a university that's more like business oriented, for me personally, it's always kind of sad to see how much people are swept away by the, by the titles and the prestige of something. And it's so refreshing to talk to someone who's so bold and just like, you know, like you said, doesn't worry and just goes for it. And and I think, yeah, I'm very happy to share this episode with our listeners. Um, just to give you context, I worry a hell of a lot. So do not worry. <laughs> I'm not as carefree as I'm making out, but you just have to trust that, yeah, that there's some bigger meaning, weird thing happening that you can't control. And yeah, but it's something that I think always takes work. It doesn't just like come like that all the time. No, that that makes sense. But yeah, it's worrying and still going for it. Um, and that exactly. brings me to the last question. So we asked this all of our guests if, I mean, you've already interviewed a few incredible people, but if you could invite anyone else in the world for a podcast interview or any kind of interview, um, who would you invite and why? This is such a difficult question um because there's so many amazing people that I would love to speak with and yeah have on a podcast I also never have to confess I literally never ever listen to podcasts ours will be the first one then when you listen to genuinely, your episode. genuinely. I, I just have to warn yeah. you it's not fun listening to your own voice but you get used to it oh god it's gonna be bad um but yeah I literally have never got into podcasts for some strange reason but my boyfriend is very into them so anytime we do a long drive he'll put something on so I'm slowly getting into it um so I think with that in mind it would have to also be someone who has a great voice so maybe someone like the writer Hilton Alls um, or Cozy Fanny Tutti, I would love to interview again, being a lot older and hopefully wiser than I was. Um, who else? John Waters has a great voice. He would be really fun. Maybe like a round table with like loads of, I always think for me, like that was a format we did in Dazed a lot, where you'd bring all these kind of people from very different disciplines together and it would just be this kind of big conversation and it's like a crazy dinner party almost um so I feel like that would be fun I would just like sit and listen while other people talk that would be nice cool no I, I love the I love the variety in your little podcast panel and would love to see <laughs> yeah. it actually happen I mean I feel like it would be perfect for you since you said you don't really enjoy the uh, writing part of the interview so there's a lot less <laughs> exactly. with the podcast maybe I should get into podcasts all right it's been such a pleasure speaking with you and I can't wait to get back to London order something from Climax Books and see what's to come for you thanks a lot thanks for tuning in see you next week and leave a message after the beep